You're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Carolina Alves, who is the Joanne Robinson Research Fellow in Heterodox Economics at Girton College. We ask Carolina to explain to us what heterodox economics is, how it can clash with mainstream economics, and what this debate means for discussions of the economy. Carolina is also a co-founder of DEcon, the Diversifying and Decolonizing Economics Initiative. The second part of our conversation is learning about the challenges that DEcon face in creating an academic field that is more inclusive in terms of gender, race, and the global south. This episode does sometimes get a little bit in the weeds, so for listeners new to economics, we recommend you take a look at the write-up if you ever feel lost. There we explain all the topics in great detail and have links to further readings as well. That said, we think this episode could be very useful for non-economists too. One of the points that I found most interesting in our conversation was how different debates of economics and the economy can actually be. A lot of political policies rely on economic models for legitimacy, so it is absolutely worth understanding what assumptions these models rely on, even if they can get a bit tricky at times. Also, almost every academic field is grappling with these huge questions of decolonizing and diversity at the moment, so listeners will almost certainly be able to find some useful parallels to apply to their own studies. Just one quick housekeeping point, uh, we're still recording episodes remotely and actually had to re-record a short clip at around the 40 minute mark. Hence, there is a little bit of a change in how Carolina's mic sounds. But without any further to do, here's the episode. My name is Carolina Alves. I am the John Robinson Research Fellow in Heterodox Economics at uh, Girton College at University of Cambridge. I'm out of interest. What made you choose economics? Every time I, I come across this question, I start, it's almost like a soul searching process <laughs> to find out what really happened. And the more I think about it, the more confirmed actually my initial answer, which was, I think, was a mix between uh, my mom's views on the Brazilian politics at the time in a context where we uh, ex- no, we are experiencing high, very, very, very high inflation often like double-digit monthly inflation in Brazil. Uh, So, of course, I grew up in that environment with (laughs) my mom always criticizing the government regarding to that. And I have memories of going to the supermarkets, you know, and buying, I don't know, 10 packs of rice, 20 packs of beans and everything. You know, when was the payment day, we had to go to the supermarket and buy everything for the entire month into the next payday. And I think this always in my memory regarding you know the idea of money price you know inflation that has always in my mind since I was little and that comes together many you know questions regarding many social issues as well that I, th- I thought around me with uh, in my family so I think by the time I was really going to the library uh, during the equivalent here of your sixth form I was okay what am I gonna do what am I gonna do and when I read uh, the description about economics, whoever wrote that description <laughs> was spot on <laughs> because everything I wanted to know was there. Uh, so I, I thought, gosh, I think I want to do economics. And it was a bit of a conflict, actually, because I come from a town in Brazil that is known because of two of the best universities in Brazil. Your field of expertise is physics and engineering. So to come to my my mom in the 1990s and say, oh, I'm going to do economics was like, what? How? (laughs) 
how are you, how are you going to do that? Uh, but then, but as you know, as uh, I really got into this course and uh, the, the BA in economics, I, I realized that that's what I wanted. And it was interesting because my mom was very into politics. She is still into politics. At the time, she was a member of the Labour Party in Brazil. I think she still is. <laughs> so we started having a very interesting new... Um, it's like if we developed a new relationship between us in that kind of political, social and economic political aspect of uh, society. How did you come to heterodox economics then? What was your, your kind of journey to that? It's interesting. As I said, when I was choosing... Uh, when I chose economics, the next step was to choose which university you're going to go, right? I think it's very similar in the UK now that I'm more familiar with that. And at the time in, in Brazil, we had like three top universities you could go to do economics. And it was very clear that one of them was very mathematized. <laughs> the other one was very into development. And uh, the third one was something more like history of economics, um, uh, economic history, actually, and uh, development. I, I wasn't, to be very honest, I just wanted to get into the university. <laughs> I wasn't really uh, being picky, but yeah, uh, I did actually end up being accepted uh, in that university where the focus was economic history and development. And I had a very interesting journey there because it was a very, nowadays I look and it was a very heterodox <laughs> undergrad, uh, even for Brazilian uh, standards. Uh, and I was I was very lucky as well because I'm from a generation, probably I'm going to give away my age now, where we didn't use textbooks, right? I never had economics of textbooks. And, uh, and actually doing my undergrad, we are fighting against the Ministry of Education in Brazil that was trying to implement textbooks come from the U.S., into the majority of the BAs in Brazil. And we actually, the students are getting organized to resist that. Of course, we lost the battle, but it was, uh, was very interesting. So I remember, for example, my last year, I had international economics. And it was the first year where all these textbooks, they were introduced uh, to BAs in my university. And uh, I look back and I think my professor teaching international economics wasn't happy either because we are reading, you know, things such as Fred Bloch, the original, the origin, origins of um, the international economic disorder, which is an amazing book you guys should read. We were reading like, uh, you know, amazing books regarding all these Bretton Woods kind of uh, institutions. And then all this was replaced by the international economics by Grugman, <laughs> Grugman in uh, Oxfield. So it's like if, if you had like a, a reading list with probably, I don't know, 20 books, and then you get to one manual. Uh, and, uh, so I, I think also that that has, uh, you know, not really relying on manuals had a huge impact in, in my education as an economist. I remember having Macro reading Keynes, reading Kaletsky, reading Marx. I mean, see, this, my, my macro macroeconomics uh, <laughs> undergrad was, uh, uh, module was amazing. So I think this, as I said, by, I've never really discussed if I was a heterodox economics or not, economist or not, but I knew this divide was there. And by the time I decided to do a master, it became very clear because I knew the kind of topic I wanted to research wouldn't really find a place in a normal department of economics. So I went to, at the time I, I was very clear I wanted to do MPhil, 
and uh, I knew I, I wouldn't get in. The topic I wanted to study, it wouldn't be accepted in, in the normal department of economics. And that's why I moved to sociology. And so that's when I realized there is a divide, a very clear divide in economics. But up to then, you know, I was fine. It wasn't true when I got in UK, so us uh, to do the PhD, where the term heterodox economics, it became very clear that I need to know what was it and that I was one <laughs> in a way. And then it started, because as I said, I knew about this Latin American structuralist thought, which is called by uh, Latin Americans, you know, a heterodox, a heterodox approach to development. But I've never had thought in terms of heterodox economics. It wasn't until I got here that I realized that I was one, and that divide was important. I think up to when I was in Brazil, I didn't really, it was more a division between economics that does math, economics that doesn't do math, something very vulgar. And when I got here, I realized it was much more complex. And that kind of leads me on to the, the first question I, I wanted to ask, which is, um, what do you think economics is as a discipline? Like, what is it studying and what is its purpose? Yeah, I mean, to be very honest, it's very easy to identify to identify ourselves with economics, right? Regardless if we know what the topic is, because we look around how we organize society and many of the questions we start asking sometimes at a very early stage in our life they're somehow related to economics. And I think, as I just described, that's what happens to me. And, um, you know, if you go to the literally to the meaning of the word, is that what is saying to us, how we organize our house, our home? And so I think economics is basically about us, is about the social world, is about, um, you know, looking around and see how we can make society better. And I know this is very cliche, but I, I'm kind of siding here uh, with something that uh, a Gretonian economist that was contemporary of John Robinson used to really push forward, that economics should be about social betterment. You know, we have to look around and see how we can live and offer everybody better conditions. Um, of course, this is a very probably ideal way to understand economics when we start our BA, as you both know by now, we kind of face a very different um, idea of what economics is and how economics is taught, which is uh, a different kind of question in a way. But for me, that's how I see economics. That's why I'm still very passionate about economics. And perhaps that's why I start kind of moving away from what we call uh, mainstream economics aside in a little bit, which, you know, we're going to discuss that probably, but this kind of heterodox economics, because I, 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 you know, I do identify myself with I had, I economics that is more social. So let, let's unpack that uh, just now, which is this idea of heterodox economics. So we've talked a little bit about what economics is as a discipline and what we might hope it achieves. Um, what is heterodox economics in this concept? I think there are so many, uh, you know, scholars trying to work it out what heterodox economics is, and I, I, I did kind of uh, start that journey as well. Look, to be very honest, I've been working with a colleague, in Alma, that's Ingrid Kavangraven, who is based in New York, and we are trying literally to come up with a definition of heterodox economics, which everybody looks at us and say, why? There are so many definitions out there, but we 
we are really seeing that as a strategic moment um, that if you want to improve the discipline and have a discipline that actually will help us to again to improve society to make you know uh, to produce uh, better living conditions for everybody we need to s- somehow have a definition of heterodox economics that brings different um, streams of economics together so right now for us uh, we are trying to move away from uh, uh, I would say narrow definition of economics, which is that that we are used to in our own BAs and in, in, in masters and PhDs, which is the idea that uh, economics is about studying, you know, this allocation of scarce resources and looking for the best allocation and so on. Uh, and of course, we know and we probably can discuss more about you know about this how uh, what the implications of such idea of economics when it comes to methods and theory. So, but Let's leave that on the side. So that's the definition that's out there. And what Ingrid and I we want to do is to try to have a kind of economics, which we call heterodox economics, that's more concerned about the study of production and distribution of what is produced in, in, in economy, you know, of this economic surplus. And we're not reinventing the wheel in a way. This goes back to many classical, uh, classical economies that were, also understanding uh, the economy in that way. So we want to do that. So basically we want to say, okay, is the study of production, is the study of uh, uh, distribution, what else? You know, so we want to make clear that that kind of uh, approach will bring into the center the idea of power relations when we are understanding that um, production and distribution. We want to uh, bring to the discussion the idea that there is, uh, there is more than just the market when we are looking at our society, because that's to, to go back to the implication of the kind of uh, economics we are used to, we are basically under a market framework, right? Everything happens through the market. And uh, we are trying to kind of open that up and say, why? You know, what if it's, that's not the case? It, it, what if it's not just about a dichotomy between the state and market, but they are actually a part of our economy, which has nothing to do with both, you know, in trying to bring a discussion, which also uh, we've been actually getting to this because of this discussion of um, decolonizing economics and have contacts with authors from the global south who actually had a totally different way to approach economics in that sense. So we're trying to bring that in. Uh, and yeah, so in that sense, we want to also bring together you know, different stream of economics that will identify themselves with this kind of uh, of definition. So if I understand it right, and feel free to correct me here if if I don't, but heterodox economics is in large part about broadening the field. And as you mentioned, um, bringing in a lot of areas that you feel are currently neglected by the mainstream, such as power dynamics, um, such as out-of-market activities and and others. Is, Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely correct. And, and I like you brought that up because sometimes we start with this definition of uh, heterodox economics and, and you never get to uh, a very interesting part of that discussion, which is not really a theoretical, a conceptual definition, but it's the idea of what actually, why this term exists in the first place. <laughs> and, and I think it's interesting to, to talk a little bit about that because... One thing is to look back in you know, the history of economic thought and trying to kind of find out, well, when actually we heard about heterodox economics in the, you know, the first time, what was it about, you know, and kind of trying to understand things, the, the historical aspect in a different way, which is, and again, I'm, I'm, we're falling here 
an author called uh, Frederick Lee, who actually did engage in that exercise. What he does is he, he looked back and he said he looks back and he said, "Look, what's happening here is." In the same way that uh, economics started kind of narrowing down its approach and methods, right? It started excluding other approaches, right? And of course, when that happens, you know, the other approaches, they were trying to find a home, basically, right? They're trying to get together with their mates, like, well, we're excluded from here, what do we do? And, and so what we have, we can actually tra- trace the, the heterodox term back to, you know, 19, I think 1863, whatever. But the way we that makes more sense for us is to look I- into how these different economists or community of economists start actually finding, trying to find a home for themselves when they start being excluded from that process that started happening in the last century, where economics becomes uh, became much more uh, narrow. So what happens was we have, especially in the 1960s and the 1970s as well, this kind of a creation, a formation of various different communities of economists, right? Who actually they are not none of them put their hands up to like, oh, I'm a heterodox economist. Not at all. They just, they are not self-identified as heterodox, but they start really feeling, okay, we need a different home here. Uh, and so that's when we have in the US, for example, uh, the creation of the Union of, um, Union of Radical Political Economy, in 1968, you have the post-Keynesian economics starting in the US in the 1960s onwards. Uh, you have the institutionalist one, the, the Association of Institutional Thought, 1979, no, trying to revive itself. And probably at the time, I'm not so familiar with that, you also have Austrian economists trying to find their way through that um, journey. So I, I think what's happening, this is these communities, they're just popping because they're not finding their place. By the time we reach the 1980s and 1990s, it's there when these communities of economists, they decide to kind of trying to get together, right? So let's see here. And that's when this broader umbrella of um, heterodox economics is starting actually popping up more clearly, right? So we start, we start, we have the, the international, the International Confederation of Associations for Pluralism in Economics in 1993. You have uh, the Association for Heterodox Economics in 1999 uh, and others. So they start kind of getting organized to, to really also to survive in a way. And this is interesting because then we had to the 2000, it started having conferences on heterodox economics, right? So it was in 2003 where we have the first word conference of the future of heterodox economics, which is amazing. You know, so the thing is, and then of course, one thing that's very important in that journey is by 2014 is when we start having a heterodox newsletter, right? Which is the most comprehensive newsletter you can get to trying to find out what's happening in a heterodox economic world. So of course the term was there, okay? Now a different exercise is to look into that and then trying to define what heterodox economics is. And that's where the confusion starts, you know, it gets confused indeed, because you can look into these institutions and try to find uh, institutional definition 
that actually show any kind of glue between these communities, right? And, and that is the first thing that people noticed was, okay, they are somehow trying to uh, get together uh, in opposition of the mainstream economic theory. And then that's when this definition, which I find a very poor definition for heterodox economics, that it pops up. It's like, oh, of course, the only thing this bunch of diverse communities have in common is being against or uh, have opposition to the mainstream economic theory and method. Uh, but I, I disagree with that because I look at this rich and vast <laughs> community of economists. They would exist regardless if... Uh, you know, if the mainstream economics disappeared tomorrow, it is a matter that how they find a way to survive. And, you know, there are other uh, economists such as Hogson, who is an institutionalist, who look into that process and he find a different glue for all these uh, communities, which is apparently from his perspective, uh, the, the common point that is that all these economists, they, are they have left oriented views, <laughs> so, which is polemical, but you know, here we go. So I think this is a way to trying to define the term. And I find, uh, you know, it's important for us, but we have to be very careful of how we then you take that heterodox economics is just about a bunch of left economists getting together or it's just about the opposition to mainstream. Uh, so I don't know if I'm addressing your question uh, uh, directly, but I think there are two parts that we need to understand how the term becomes popular. So from, from the, how we got into that point is about these communities of heterodox economists trying to get together, being very different from each other. And it's also about we, as a research, looking to this process and trying to work it out what uh, heterodox economics is. And that's the, the difficulty. Uh, it's almost like, in, in here I'm following uh, Lee, uh, Lee's point as well, we're looking to a term that has multi-level, uh, a kind of multi-level definition, right? So you have communities, you have the economic theory that is important you have this institutional aspect you know you have so many different multi-level uh, aspects to consider then it becomes very confusing to understand but we shouldn't give up <laughs> all these definitions of heterodox economics they are what we call a priori definitions right but uh, there is a research now being done by Daniela Gizzo in Bristol and Andrew Mirman has been doing that for a while, where actually they go and they ask <laughs> if you consider yourself a heterodox economist. And that's an entire different level of confusion now because we would look into some uh, economists and classify them as heterodox economists. Then you go and you ask them if they are one and they're going to say, oh, I'm not. So I think there are different um, you know, levels of difficulties here, maybe three levels of difficulties. One is how the term is this multi-level term. The second is this a priori aspect. And the third one I'm going to mention now is that this exercise of looking back in this term and trying to work it out what the term is, has been done from different angles. So you have uh, philosophers doing that. Then you have microeconomists looking to that. Then you have, uh, you know, uh, macroeconomists that would say, oh, this is all about endogenous money. This also caused uh, a difficulty to trying to, to understand that, that term. But I think we should insist because basically for me, what that does is to show us that there are different ways to do economics. The object of analysis is the same for 
all these economics, right, which is society in reality. This is our objective study, but there are different ways to do that. And we need to give space to all these different ways because there is, unfortunately, we liked or not, no truth about reality. We don't have, a, you know, a, a final saying about what reality is. And I'm not just talking about pluralism in a very uh, vulgar way. Uh, I'm talking about a process of investigation that literally gives space to competitive theories, uh, theories with different uh, explanatory power, powers, and you have to consider all of them. So there has been some self-criticism from mainstream economics. Paul Romer wrote this article, The Trouble with Macroeconomics. You might think that behavioural economics is now pretty widely accepted, but used to be less so. What's the difference between those self-criticisms and the criticisms coming from heterodox economics proper? Good question. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do. I definitely think there are two different beasts. Uh, you know, the, the criticism, criticism coming from heterodox economics and the self-criticism of mainstream economics are, are two different things. Let me start. I mean, I like to mention Colander because Colander is actually, even before Paul Romer, uh, you know, he's the one who was um, really spending some time trying to, to map and explain uh, the changes within mainstream economics. Uh, so it's author that we all should read because it's interesting. I think there are criticisms of economics coming from, from within, and uh, I think they're good and interesting. But I think we should um, try to filter that from two different perspectives, right? The first one is the extent to which this within criticism actually are change in the research agenda, the teaching, right, in, in economics, uh, the extent they're opening uh, economics to the different to different approaches, or in, in the case, though, to follow uh, upon what we've been discussing, you know, the extent to which they are opening the field to these different communities that were uh, excluded before. Uh, so I think this is one point we need every time we see a, a criticism within mainstream, we need to consider it, you know. And I think the other point is, you know, the extent to which this, this criticism actually change core methodological and theoretical assumptions within the mainstream. I think this is a very important point. Are they challenging the mathematical deductivism, for example? Are they challenging the rational actors, the, the selfish individual behavior in terms of maximizing the individuals, maximizing their own interests? You really should think in that way because then we can actually be sure if these criticisms are opening the field or are challenging the field in, change, in terms of a change of paradigm, you know, a shift in paradigm. And to give you an example, and I think behavioral uh, economics is the perfect example in that case, because, yes, finally, the home economics <laughs> agent is being Right, this this powerful superhero that knows everything, he makes the best decision. Finally, we you know we had the, we had a good uh, set of tools to challenge tools to challenge that. And I like an uh, aspect uh, highlighted by Dr. Um, Antara Hazar. She's at Cambridge as well, but I think I think no, I'm sure she's in the Faculty of Law because I like when 
say something along these lines, saying that this be, this behavior economic shown economists that first of all, human beings are inferior in the sense that they can't compute all this information. They don't have self-control. <laughs> they can't make the best decision. In another way, it shows that uh, human beings are superior in the sense that they are motivated by things other than this material self-interest. They're not robots, right? They are actually altruists and so on. And I think this is definitely a very important aspect of behavioral economics. However, <laughs> uh, you know, we had two Nobel Prizes, you know, because of behavioral economics. But the question is, has actually behavioral economics been able to change these core assumptions of economic theory? Right? So if you go back to some of uh, Dr. Howard's points, she's very clear that how mainstream economics, like, you know, holding very firmly in, in this aspect of economic decision-making, how is it still very mechanical, is still motivated by greed and, and selfishness, right? So instead of changing the paradigm of economics by, the, by challenge, you know, economic fundamental methodology or by questioning some of the conceptions in, in macro and micro, Basically, behavioral economics is just applying their own, you know, its own insights in terms of this nudging kind of work. Uh, so rather than, you know, bringing a revolution in the field, it's kind of bring something like an extra, an incremental aspect to kind of be very aware. Of course, I mean, uh, we have to be very clear, I'm kind of simplifying a lot of the behavioral economics work now and is a field that is flourishing at a speed that's amazing. So, you know, we have to be very careful for what I'm saying. But at least for now, for the last 10 years, that's the way I see behavioral uh, economics. And, and I'm not even go through it uh, to really discuss how behavioral economics is still very much uh, the margin of the teaching process. Look at you guys here. You know, do you have a core course on behavioral economics? No, you don't, right? And, and that's a uh, Cambridge no exception. Can I see if I'm understanding that right? And I'm saying this as someone who doesn't know anything really about economics. But it sounds like what you're saying is economics has... Um, a bunch of models which you can use to understand uh, different economic phenomena. Um, and the criticisms that come from within mainstream economics, the self-criticisms, they go something like this. You take a model, say, you know, the uh, kind of rational choice theories of old and see what it says. And for instance, rational choice theory used to say people act to act in line with their expected utility. Turns out that's not true, right? Because behavioural economics comes along and shows out shows how people have different attitudes to risk than you might expect. And then what you do is you just tweak one of the things inside the model. So you're just changing it from within. And it sounds like the difference between the criticisms within mainstream economics and from heterodox economics is that heterodox economics is saying something like, well, maybe we need a different model entirely or a different perspective or another perspective. And that's what you're missing when you're just tweaking the parameters from inside that that same model is that right yeah it's a very nice way to frame all this you know we're talking about uh, the same general models with this kind of uh some kind of behavior that moves us away from from what is considered the, the ideal kind of behavior but we don't really get to challenge that model uh you know we don't get into that discussion so i think he, you're definitely right. And actually, when you're talking about that, it came to my mind to go back on Colander, because complexity economics is another fashionable thing to say how economics uh, has been changing. And I think 
people actually that are not economists doing scholars that are not economists doing complexity, yes, probably they are challenging. But if you get economists such as Colander in uh, Coopers, they have a very interesting paper on complexity and economic policy has become you know, very popular. Uh, the paper is said to be a paradigm shift in, 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 in economics. But then you get uh, a, a recent actually read Alan Kerman, who is also an economist, a behavioral economist, no, a complexity economist, who was actually criticizing Colander's and Cooper's paper because he was saying, look, they are saying all this about complexity, okay? However, these two authors, they're not able to move away from the market equilibrium theory. You know, they're still stuck to that, which is actually a contradiction anomaly when you think in terms of complexity because the complexity perspective, its own idea is that we can't converge to equilibrium. <laughs> the only idea is that, uh, you know, you have a system that constantly evolved and its intrinsic dynamics may not really have a resting point, uh, you know, but but they're doing, I mean, I recommend you guys to, to read uh, Colander's and you finish reading that, it's like, wow, this is a paradigm shift. But when you scrutinize what they, their framework, their models, they are not really challenging uh, some of uh, these uh, core assumptions, in that case, the, the market equilibrium uh, theory. So so I think you're right. I think the, the, the mainstream criticism is, is important. But is you know is the internal criticism is very important. But we have to acknowledge the limitation of criticism and also acknowledge that that is not what heterodox economics is about. Uh, what one interesting point that comes to my mind, and feel free to to disagree with me here, but is uh, the work by by Piketty, uh, which was hugely influential, caused you know uh, especially amongst the public. But when you really look at what his work was. Um, as for controversial as people believed it to be, the model he used was still very much rooted in those days. Yeah, I mean, this is is, is amazing. Piketty, in many others, working in infinitality is a different a different aspect in this in what we're discussing. In what sense, economics actually uh, has gone through a, a empirical shift. Also because of the data, because of what we have available to, you know, the the the, the development in computers and, and etc. And this empirical shift, of course, we should welcome that. But this empirical shift has happened at the expenses of theory, of how we challenge theory. And again, the same old, the same old, the, the, the assumptions and so on. Because Piketty and, and many scholars following Piketty and working with inequality more specifically, they are very good at this empirical aspect, right? They're very good at this, uh, the, 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 how they deal with data. Uh, however, they do not get to challenge some of this, uh, the mainstream uh, theory. And, and they are in departments where they end up being welcomed because of that, because they are not really uh, placing challenge in the kind of uh, the entire structure of the department when it comes to research and funding. Because, you know, they're doing the empirical work, they're adding to the department, but they're not really challenging yeah, some of these theoretical aspects that if they actually go through that, probably would be a limitation would hinder their own research, their own finding, to be very honest. My perspective is, and that's another polemical discussion, not only in economics, but also in social sciences more broadly. I don't think we can do, uh, as social scientists, I think we do need theory. Uh, you know, is it possible to do just this empirical work without having uh, a theoretical apparatus 
uh, that is, you know, more coherent. One area that I don't think we, we've touched upon yet, but I think is really interesting as well, is how the discussion of heterodox and mainstream economics fits in the public debate. Um, as we've talked about, uh, economics has uh, these huge consequences for policy and real world application. And that means it's inevitably also a sort of political debate. You've kind of hinted about how one criticism of heterodox economics is that it's just uh, a bunch of left wing people complaining. Could you elaborate a bit more about this and, and your thoughts on the kind of left wing, right wing divide? Yeah, did I say that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, this is, oh gosh, that's that's a, is definitely a difficult question and a question I'm still um, trying to work things out. Look, I, I do think this debate of um, heterodox versus mainstream economics is partially political. There is no way we can deny that. And, uh, but I think, I'm not sure if it's really a debate about left versus uh, right-wing political positions. I think there are many reasons why sometimes that is the case. But I, I would like to perhaps to, to talk a little bit about why this debate is political, but moving away from the left and right-wing kind of discussion for now. We'll bring that to the end. Look, what we have here, we have two, as, as I said before, right, you have these two ways of doing economics. And I'm going to simplify, but I have, we have one way of doing economics, which is focus on the individual, as we know, is focus on choice, uh, is focus on, on, focusing on uh, self-interest in terms of achieving this uh, social uh, optimal. Uh, and again, to be repetitive a little bit, we're talking about this um, allocation of uh, this efficient allocation of um, resource, which not necessarily equals to equity. You know, that's not that's something interesting for that economy. You know, the solution that's efficient, not necessarily is equitable. And that's and, and we accept in our models. So you have these uh, economics and then you have the other side, a kind of economics where, first of all, is economics that doesn't start with um, with the individuals, right? That's not the, the, the starting point of that economics. Is economics that considered a different um, groups' interests, different um, classes, basically, when it comes to distribution of resources. Is is economics that uh, does not really rely on this uh, self um, interest approach, or even just on the market uh, to to theorize uh, it's it theorize society or the economy, you know, is actually the kind of uh, economics that uh, considered all the, as I said, the power aspect, cultural aspect, ethics, for example. And what that means basically is that we have two competitive theories, theories, sorry, two competitive uh, approach to to economy, to society that are, in a way, as I said before, looking to the same object, and they are having different views on how, uh, different views regarding how wealth is created and how it's distributed. Basically, I mean, that will never end up well. <laughs> All this is going to be political in that sense. We, you know, we're looking to, you know, different ways to say wealth creation, distribution, you know. So I think by default, this dispute is political. From my perspective, I think I see nothing nothing wrong with this actually. You know, I think 
Economics is not a neutral discipline. I don't think it can be a neutral discipline. I don't think that when, if you go towards a, a, a path which I've been doing in the last 70 years to trying to make economics scientific, we'll somehow manage to make economic uh, economics neutral and that will be fine. Then you're going to be uh, able to predict more uh, accurately and so on. I don't think this is possible. You know, for me, Markets and individualism, they are inherently incapable of taking uh, into account what is uh, a satisfactory distribution of resources. Basically, that's it. So so for me, uh, what that says to me is that there is um, a fierce dispute in this two approach, which by the end of the day will be uh, political. I have just a slightly annoying question, but... In case people don't know, could you just clarify the difference between efficiency and equity? Why does orthodox economics only tell us about efficiency? Let me start with the concept of efficiency first, and then we move to talk a little bit about uh, efficiency versus equity. In mainstream economics, in orthodoxy, we have a concept we call economic efficiency. We learn that concept when we go through our microeconomics module. And this discussion is nothing else than the discussion of Pareto efficiency, which I'm sure you both are very familiar with. There are many points, many aspects we could go through to explain what Pareto efficiency is. But I think for our discussion, we, we can highlight only two. One is a situation in our economy in which the location of resource is such that if I change anything there, I probably cause a negative impact in someone else, okay? Another aspect that is interesting to highlight here is that in that economy, if I decide to increase the production of one good, I will probably decrease the production of other good, of another good, okay? So this is how our efficient economy is working, or should work. <laughs> and here, we're looking at production that we try to have the lowest total cost that's possible. And just, you know, our, our observation here, this discussion of efficiency in that sense is really important and timely. Because when you look at our current COVID-19 pandemic crisis, we can see that many uh, scholars, policymakers, economists, they're highlighting how we're not prepared. We are not prepared for that crisis, how our economy is not resilient. And there are economists trying to explain that lack of resiliency, resilience, resiliency, <laughs> looking back of how in the last 30 and 40 years, we have organized both the private and the public sector around this concept of economic efficiency where we have no spare capacity in economy, in a way. Uh, for example, the discussion of um, the, the lack of hospital beds in the UK, for example, has been uh, approached or has been discussed trying to understand the, the logic behind the organization of the public sector in the UK. And, and that discussion is taking economists back to that discussion of economic efficiency and etc. But that is a dif different point, uh, not for now. So to, let's go back to the concept of economic efficiency. This concept has actually 
traveled many subfields within economics. One of them is the economics of public policy, where we look into the economic welfare uh, of society. We look at social objectives in relation to economic activity, basically. And here, we are trying to have an efficient level of output. And what we're doing is, our objective is to select a certain quantity of output for each good and service that will lead to that highest level of economic welfare. That's where we have efficient, our efficient level of output. Here, we're not really considering distribution, we're not considering what's fair or what is just. The idea of equity, the equity objective is not there. Right? Is that what's happening? The logic here is that we're trying to select a level of output at which the excess of benefits over costs, that is the net benefit, is the largest. Okay, so I know I'm bringing a lot of things in. Uh, it's because that discussion, actually, to, to go through that discussion properly, we have to bring in the concept of total social benefit, total social cost marginal social cost, marginal social benefit, and so on. But, you know, then we set our framework to, to, to reach this efficient level of output. But overall is that we want a level where, you know, the excess of benefits over costs is the largest. Now, as you can see, the notion of equity is not there. Why? I think the best way to explain that is if uh, we go back to example that one of the textbooks um, uh, used when we're teaching economics of public policy uh, uses, which is an example where we have two members of society, basically Adam and Eve, <laughs> and uh, they are producing and consuming their own apple. So if when we go through our framework, we reach that... Um, total output of 10 kilos of uh, apple per week, and that is where we have our efficient system, you can see how there are a number of ways in which we can divide these 10 kilos of apple between Adam, Adam and Eve. We can go for 5 kilos each, we can go for 5 kilos uh, for Eva and 4 kilos for Adam, or 10 kilos for Adam and nothing for Eve. For Eve. So there are many combinations uh, at this efficient level of output, and we're not really considering what is fair. For us economists, actually, we are, you know, questions concerning the distribution of apples between Adam and Eve, there are matters of equity, but we are actually trying to look into the question of efficiency. And that's why I mentioned before that a solution that's efficient does not mean that it's a solution that's equitable. That's what I had in the back of my mind, in a way. I hope that was somehow helpful. So if I uh, could like draw two key kind of lessons that, that you kind of mentioned about, which I find really, really interesting. The first one is this idea that economics um, is always inherently political, um, you know, and treating people as an individual, as you said, and also this idea of Pareto efficiency. These are value judgments and, uh, you know, do influence how, how we do policy and is something that economics, um, you know, might have to do in order to, to work as a subject, but it's definitely something it should be more explicit about. And the, the, the second point that you raised, which I think is really interesting as well, is that 
it kind of doesn't make sense to focus on heterodox being left-wing and mainstream being right-wing um, because these are more kind of two different frameworks that can lead to a different kind of kind of policies and conclusions. And I think it's worth noting maybe, you know, as we kind of mentioned before with, with Piketty, that plenty of mainstream approaches can lead to left-wing arguments. You know, you can also bring in Stiglitz or Milanovic and the like. Uh, and also you can look at heterodox economics and you can see some right-wing politics there. So we can discuss about uh, Austrian economics and, and all the like. Um, there are kind of two sides and it's more about these frameworks and attitudes than it is about, um, you know, neoliberalism is good versus neoliberalism is bad, which I often find, especially talking with a lot of, like, let's say, non-economics friends, uh, is often the way it kind of gets categorized. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think... Of course, the, the 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 left and right wing debate is is in there, but I I, I agree. I, I think there we have to be. You know, it's not a how to say black and white kind of division. And and I think somehow the point where you're touching as well is an old discussion economics, which is uh, the discussion which you guys also uh, placed that as a point for us to, to try and to unpack a little bit, which is the idea if economics can be value free, you know, if economics can, um, can be a political, as you mentioned, I think Hachun Chang in your first year undergrad, you know, what he's trying to tell you is that, that you cannot, you know, uh, economics is, um, by definition, political, uh, exactly as well because of I think Hatun uh, Chen goes more towards the debate of um, how we need institutions, how institutions are political, how we need the government, you know, and how this will never actually allow us to separate um, economics from politics or or from ideology. But you know, there is one point I I think perhaps if we have a time it would be interesting to mention here, which is not really about. Um, is that is related to that, and I think is not enough highlighted, which is economics itself does trying to make this argument that is you know value free. That, you know we go through this uh, the old debate between normative economics, you know, uh, and positive economics, and, and etc. And I think for me, one thing that perhaps you need to discuss is how. This view of economics, the way we see and understand and theorize economics through the market, through the market, market equilibrium, how actually that approach has its own normative judgment as well, right? And how we don't really bring into the, to, in that consideration, because when you're trying to make economics as positive science, you kind of blurred a little bit, you kind of hide a little bit this, this ethical and this moral aspect of economics, right? And then in, in, in econ economists, they feel like they're not having a normative discussion here. They feel that they're fine, okay? However, for a field, okay, that is studying human behavior, that is studying distribution of resources, you know, it can't never be actually free of these moral and ethical aspects. And when economists are actually saying, oh, here we go, we need this optimal place, we need to head to this kind of equilibrium, we need to, that's the way uh, the rational uh, behavior, what is rational, what's commendable, that is a red, uh, full of judgment, <laughs> full, of, full of normative aspect, but is the, no, the aspect that is, it shows actually a bias towards marked process towards equilibrium, which is associated with this social optimal uh, kind of situation. But this can literally be said that it's also biased. 
biased towards normative judgment where we know we are always heading to a condition of equilibrium, to a condition where uh, we, we especially in the case of uh, the equilibrium, you're talking about it is, you know, marginal returns, how agents will behave in that way. So, you know, we can't forget that uh, economics, ec- the framework we use, we should question because perhaps the framework itself is also full of biases. <laughs> and economists, they don't, even, uh, they don't even realize that, actually. Just again to, to try and clarify, if I understand you right, um, it's not necessarily that economics is saying the market is good or the market is bad. Um, it's rather the methodology that gets used to make that decision. And that's where we're challenging the bias and the values and everything that goes into that. And of course, that has an effect on what the end result is. And it is often the case that a lot of economists favor the market, but there's plenty, um, or I think every economist would agree, the market isn't always perfect and there's got plenty of flaws and, and the like. But it's that methodology precisely um, that we use to, to reach that judgment. You know what that makes me think of? I don't do economics, but in philosophy, we all got told to read this piece by Sen, Rational Fools. The point he's trying to drive home, at least for me, is that there are um, choices which are strictly rational from the perspective of this way of doing economics, which are just obviously not rational from the perspective of a sane human being. Um, And that seems to be what you're saying as well, right? Yeah, no, it's totally. It's to, I mean, this is this is amazing. I mean, Sen is just like this guy, right? That we all should read. <laughs> Economists, they, they, we must know what is economically good in our framework, right? Uh, and you, we are convinced to that, and you want the system to head to that, and you're going to defend this economic, uh, you know, what's economically good, the better position, the, the better equilibrium, and, and so on. And we can actually differ that from what we call would be a worse behavior, right? A worse uh, uh, economic outcome. So clearly we are judging things here. You know, the, again, to go back to, to Barbara Wooten, uh, this Gritonian economist, she she actually, she, when she's discussing um, this uh, topic, she came, she, comes, uh, she came up with uh, something she called the economic norm, the economist economic norm that is always there, but no one discussed. <laughs> we're just you know but the norm is there and that is normative and that's why all the cards should be on a table economics is political economics is dialog- ideological ethical uh, aspects are there norms aspects are there so if all the cards are, are on a table we can have a much broader and deeper discussion about these issues Mm. And, and that links nicely as well to what Finn said about this efficiency equity kind of thing, where if you say you only consider efficiency and not equity because that's controversial and requires value judgments and the like, not considering equity is a value judgment in and of itself. There's no way you can be you can be value free. Wow, that that's that's definitely yeah a, a fantastic way to 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 link with that is exactly that. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So this has been a really interesting discussion about heterodox uh, economics in the mainstream and all of these uh, different thoughts and ideas. But what I also want to talk about is your work about decolonizing uh, economics and especially your involvement in that movement. Uh, Can you talk a bit about um, how uh, you yourself are involved first and then we'll unpack the ideas? To start with this personal journey, I think, you know, for me, as an economist, as a female economist, as a female economist coming from the global south, <laughs> as a female economist coming from the global south with, uh, you know, this uh, Afro-Brazilian uh, uh, kind of um, uh, identity, 
I I felt in Brazil in 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 here, you know, that this journey within economics has always been a, a bit hard. <laughs> but I never really. It's interesting because I look back and I at the time I couldn't really point my finger of what was happening there, if it was sexism, if it was racism or whatever. And, and, and I think um, as well, this is because of generations as well. I think now your generation is, is, you know, miles ahead in terms of discussing some of these topics more openly. So I wasn't sure. What I was, uh, the feeling I had is that I always had to work harder. You know, I, I had that criticism that I look back and that wasn't fair, but I couldn't identify that was probably linked to something else. So I think my, my when I started sharing that, and that wasn't until I was doing my PhD in the UK, I found out that some of the problems I was going through, they're not really my problems. They're, you know, they're happening to many other, um, you know, economists in my field, there are structural problems. And so any kind of, you know, the discrimination uh, I was somehow seeing around me or that I was experiencing, experiencing, they were structural problems within our field. And what's interesting started like, that was my own journey then I'm not an expert on that, but I start reading about this kind of thing. So, you know, has to be very honest, there is a good literature looking to how discrimination based on identity in economics happens. You know, it has been widely, largely documented. We, we have uh, cases of how women face higher publishing standards, for example, than men. Uh, we have the situation of how women are less likely to be to be given credit if they co-author papers. You know, we have so many papers looking to that and, and, and showing us this kind of discrimination. In the case of the UK, uh, when it comes to, to race, we, we know there are no black actually academics in senior uh, management position, for example. Uh, black students are, I think, 0.5 or 1.3 times i think more likely to drop out you know there are many so you keep reading these papers and you start okay there is something happening in our profession in in going to conferences uh, i start meeting people who actually had the same concern than me and that's how decon came about <laughs> in a way you know the more you share the more you realize that people are having the same concerns you have or going through same similar experiences and of course the context of all this was uh, the Me Too movement we had in economics, right? Because of, as we know, by 2017 or end of 2016, we have all this Me Too movement in Hollywood, you know, the question of sexual harassment and etc. And that was somehow transferred to economics when the Alice Wu's paper come up. I don't know if you guys know that paper where she was looking through the job job market rumor job. I'll, I'll link it on the on the show notes and then maybe edit it oh, maybe off website <laughs> but yeah she was actually she was looking to that and, and she was able to show uh you know how actually there is a stereotyping of women in economics and, and actually is a you know economics is very misogynic um very hostile towards women and then you know, all this movement was happening in economics because then big names in economics, they had to admit that economics had a problem with women, 
right? So all this come together in 2017, you know, there's this, the profession itself was kind of trying to come into terms with the sexism that that paper actually had somehow exposed the entire profession. Many, many of us, we knew already, but uh, yeah, that paper come, it came up in a very important historical moment, and then that kind of gave us uh, strength as well to put that movement together. But since the beginning, we're very sure that you know, whatever the initiative we want to have to address sexism, to address racism in a profession, has to also bring together this uh, diversity of approach. Because our, our criticism there is also about if you don't, is a little bit what we've been discussing up to now, the economic theory can, in the same way, it can be biased towards the market, right? It can also hide some of these uh, aspects of society related to race, related to gender. It doesn't grasp that aspect. It's not just about adding a variable that represents gender. It's much more than that. So we are very clear that economics at its at as it stands, couldn't actually be a, if you don't change that aspect, you couldn't have economics that's more inclusive, you know, that's more diverse. And, and, and I think this is where, this is where we, you know, came together and we, we decided to have what we call this holistic approach. <laughs> so it's, it's an initiative to promote inclusiveness in economics, but it's not just about identity, uh, it's about content, it's about institutional structures, um, and yes, we want economics that's free of discrimination, that, you know, that it, it doesn't have, you know, sexism, racism, but we also want economics, uh, economics actually that is more open to uh, scholars that are not based in the US and the UK, and not open in terms of uh, bring these scholars in and they have, you know, they work here for a while or they, they see, we use them in our uh, syllabus for our course. We want them to be listened to. They are also engaged in theory. They also produce in a rich kind of economics. And, you know, you students, you need to read them too, right? You can't just read textbook written by white men based in the U.S. and in the U.K., you know, so we start thinking, okay, how we bring all this together? And that's basically DECOM. Is, uh, we say one without the other is not enough. So... Uh, we're looking at uh, more representation in terms of identity, more openness, uh, theoretical and methodological speak in, in aspect. And we're trying, we're calling this engagement with the global South theory, this decolonizing economics, uh, to trying to challenge the Eurocentric aspect we see in economics. So obviously discriminating against a group or on the basis of someone's identity is just intrinsically bad for any number of reasons. But I guess also the field of economics itself is also losing out because you're missing out in that way on this diversity of perspectives from those groups, right? This makes me think of, this. I might be getting this wrong, but um, the role of women's work was neglected and maybe is neglected for some time in the kind of formal models of economics um, because it's often within the domestic sphere, right? And you might think one reason for that was because women were underrepresented in economics, or still are. So I'm curious, in what other ways is economics itself losing out in terms of the diversity of thought through its problem with diversity of identity, if that makes sense? No, 
it does make it does make sense and actually is I, I have uh, found out in a very hard way when having this discussion with um, scholars that are actually doing gender studies uh, how complex that discussion is because uh, you know at the beginning of my journey I I was very much convinced and there are papers on that as well of how you know women uh, or uh, a black person would have a different perspective to economics and uh, you mentioned that and, and it's true you know this uh, there, there are studies showing us that male and female uh, they have different tastes for policy uh, for example you know different way to understand the intervention of the state uh, and economy women are more uh, favorable to interventions or a different way to understand provision of health insurance for workers. So, uh, you know, so I was very convinced that uh, we need diversity basically because that diversity would bring different ways to deal and understand economics. And I still very much think that that is the case. I think we need uh, other minorities with different perspectives and you definitely need women with a different perspective. But I think there are two things that we've been learning recently, and uh, I'm really sharing uh, with you guys things that very much uh, work in progress in my mind, which is we shouldn't, first of all, stereotype <laughs> that's just someone that would be more caring, <laughs> you know, that someone that would have this care economy or uh, you know, it's just economy. So if economics should be better, we need more women. I think. Uh, you know, is a burden to all of us, uh, female, female, or however you identify yourself, to to make to go back to the beginning of our conversation to and be very into cliches to make the world a better place. Uh, but I and, and so this is one thing you should bear in mind. The other aspect is we can't by default think this will be better, right? I mean, we can see some criticism, for example, to when Theresa May was in home office or even as a PM. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, this is we get into politics a little bit, but, you know, people can criticize, uh, you know, we had a woman there and, and look at the outcomes. Uh, or if you want to really make the end of this podcast very polemical, we can even mention Thatcher. Um, so uh, I, I think we, we have to be very careful here of how we stereotype uh, both minorities and um, women in, in economics. That said, I, I'm still uh, convinced that uh, the reason why for now we need to bring them in is because we need different ways to approach economics, different views. I mean, you can see if the Black Lives Matters, right? I don't know how close you guys are following this discussion, but I'm really into social media. I'm very active on Twitter. You know, every single tweet that comes with very strong arguments to why modeling is not giving enough attention to race or is not able to grasp racism come from black scholars. Unfortunately, there is something related to our own personal history that give us different perspective of how we see the world. And we need that in economics. If you have economics that is just male and just white, we're gonna keep having more of the same, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, in terms of examples, the way you ask, I think we gave, uh, you gave a good example. Uh, the examples I had there I'd mentioned regarding you know, health insurance and, and uh, uh, government uh, intervention. But uh, I think one interesting example here which is something that it kind of escaped of our control 
that I want to to give is that uh, for and that's not really about gender, but it's about this discussion on decolonizing economics and decolonizing the curriculum and decolonizing the university. There are several criticisms that uh, how you want to decolonize a university that by default is elitist, is racist. Uh, it was created. Uh, you know, in the case in the UK, as you can see more and more often, how some of these universities, uh, their history is very linked to slavery and slave trades and so on. So, is you know, people are saying it's almost like a contradiction in terms. And uh, and I've been thinking a lot about that. And recently, I I, I read that book, which I can uh, recommend. This is, I think, is the Colonizing the University, where one of the authors she actually made. A uh, analogy with um, the the consequence that opening the university to women had after the 1960s. I'm so upset that I don't remember her name because what she's saying is, uh, you know, these women start coming to university to learn, and they start noticing, well, that's not what happened. That's not what's happening from my personal experience. And in her argument is that a lot of the the the, the, the feminism that we've seen in university and in, in theories regarding you know the this part of the economy uh, related to reproduction reproduction and care would then be brought by this woman going to university and realizing that what has been taught there wasn't really the reflect of what was happening in society through their own lenses right so I think we of course, now we look back, so 60s, we're looking of almost what, 70 years after. Look at gender studies, look at feminist economics. You know, we can't, so perhaps I can't give you an example, but I, I think that this, this um, looking to the, the history of uh, the, some of the implications and effects and outcomes of bringing women to universities and probably linked to many, many benefits uh, that my generation, your generation, and many more generations to come are, are having. I'm just, I'm just thinking of some examples and trying to link it to some of the other interviews we had as well, especially as you mentioned there at the end, uh, feminist economics. I know one uh, now, I'd say, mainstream concern that economics is certainly aware of is uh, the idea of GDP, right? And I'm thinking of Waring's original book, If Women Counted, right, which I think is also one of the, the founding Kind of documents of, of feminist economics or an interview with Dr. Bateman and the family and the industrial revolution and all the like. Um, I think obviously, as, as you mentioned, there's uh, uh, definitely kind of a, a worry about stereotyping and, um, and, and that kind of argument. But there's also definitely current value judgments, as we kind of mentioned before, about what economics values as an outcome and bringing in a broader set of voices that can challenge those value judgments as well is, is incredibly important. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. This is uh, again uh, well said. Uh, there, there are definitely some aspects we just can't, um, you know, predict. But we definitely should um, should find a way to open the field for that to to give uh, you know the these minorities and women platform uh, so they can you know they can challenge what's out there. Uh, and also, even one aspect in all these is also. The class, the income aspect, you know, to make economics, the diversity is also about bringing, not having a universe that's very elitist, but having, uh, make, make it more democratic. I find it really interesting that um, we have lots of really good examples from a few decades ago about how um, 
diversity of identity led to progress in terms of ideas. But you said, oh, it's tricky to come up with an uh, example off the top of my head of how that might play out nowadays, for instance, introducing more economists from the global south or something. And that seems really important because you can only know these people's or those voices' contribution in retrospect, looking back, right? And that seems to be the point to me that, you know, you can't tell it from within. Just kind of kind of follow up on that and ask about uh, if you want to talk uh, maybe very briefly um, about your own work on the global south and emerging economies and financialization and all that. Uh, maybe just to give listeners um, who want to find out more about your work, uh, just a brief insight into, into what you're writing about at the moment. Yeah, no, sure. So my research interests also end up kind of following my interest in economics and in the case, as I said, because the question of inflation, the question of, you know, some other issues in Brazil, but more for, through, through my journey, I think it made I, it became very clear for me that what I wanted to know more about was, you know, the macroeconomic aspects of uh, economy. And that's why I got into macro, macro development. And, and by the time I was going through my master, that, that was very clear to me that I, I was trying to understand development, economic growth, and the contradictions that that process. That's a good thing of actually having a BA from Brazil. By default, you're going to have to read the heterodox and structuralist Latin American school. <laughs> so you get a very different uh, perspective of what development is and the contradictions within the process of development. Uh, so we don't we don't do just uh, the solo model, and then what happened was uh, I also started facing this limitation in my analysis because the, the international aspect became very clear that was a key factor there that a lot of the countries such as Brazil they would face some constraint uh, regarding their own fiscal and monetary policy because of what was happening in developed economies and in the, the, the international financial and monetary system. And that's how I start actually looking into what the heterodoxy called financialization and uh, taking the risk of making uh, many scholars very upset. I would call that, we can actually say that that's something similar than the financial globalization, that integration of um, the, the emerging markets or the, these developing economies with the, the international financial monetary system. And, and the reason why I'm saying scholars would be upset with me because financialization is itself a, a broad thing to define and it's related to this increase of uh, the financial transactions we start having in the last 30, 40 years. And, and uh, for heterodoxy, this is an important term because we're basically looking to finance and show showing that finance has different dimensions uh, that can cause crises, that can impact in the distributional uh, process. It's not just you know, financing production, there's something else there. And if there's a development of finance in the way we've seen in the 30 years, 30, 40 years, you're going to have some implications. And uh, developing countries, they get into, th the way I'm looking is how developing countries get into this process in the 19, 1990s, some developing countries before, in terms of opening their um, financial and trade, you know, trade borders, uh, and kind of trying to, to under the, 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 the guise of uh, promoting economic growth and development, but how when they you know jump into this process of uh, uh, financialization, they, they actually start facing even more constraint because this process 
uh, also shows a, a contradiction between a kind of finance that goes to production and a finance that finance most most finance in in is related to speculation and hot money and in you know uh, many other kind of uh, uh, flows of capital. So what I'm doing is. is saying, okay, if there is a problem here when you're looking into this international aspect, if you have something called financialization that uh, it looks into this finance, the finance in, in a more critical way, what's happening to the economy of these developing economies? How is it, how the macroeconomic effects on that uh, economies? And in the case of my PhD, I was looking to Brazil, looking how the dynamics of the public debt change it uh, because of this integration you know trying still trying to address the question if there was if there is financialization in brazil actually um this because the international aspect is is okay fine but what's happening within uh, the economy so what i'm doing now in this postdoc is to carry on this investigation but now opening up for developing countries more broadly uh, trying to understand how these economies they can keep up with this process of uh, financial development. Again, seeing that in a more critical way, looking into the distributional aspects uh, of that process, uh, and trying to to come up with some policy recommendations that it may be the case we do need capital controls, for example, for these economies to actually develop, uh, to challenge a little bit the the idea that. Um, access to finance by default leads a country to growth you know perhaps it doesn't uh, we need to kind of come up with a different uh, theory for that so the first question we ask everyone is what significant thing have you changed your mind about recently and why there are probably many things i could say in a way actually i was thinking but i wanted to focus on our discussion on our you know discussion about heterodox economics and actually about cambridge and about left uh, versus right-wing um, discussion. And I think somehow I, I have already said that, but for me, recently, I mean, the dichotomy I had between heterodox and mainstream left and right-wing people was really bad before I, get into Cam- before I got into Cambridge. I think uh, working here, I realized that um, there's such more complexity into that. You look at this department and it's amazing uh, uh, to get to know uh, professors and economists there. You never really would say they're right wings <laughs> and uh, so i think this has changed um i mean uh, it, it has been not only changed me but it has it, ha- it has made me to rethink how actually i want to engage with mainstream economics and with economists that are actually doing mainstream economics and the, the massive change uh, the, the implication of uh adding more complexity to that very black and white division I had before was to get into into read a little bit more and we also discussed about discussed that a little bit it was to unpack how you may very well have this more progressive view of uh, society and politics but your own methods as we discussed look actually summarized that very well before how our own method in theory may have implications that are actually contradict our own view own political views so i think this is for me something that i had never i mean maybe it's obvious for social scientists but as economists i had never really thought in that terms you know and i think another relate to that something that contributed that change in my mind was the elections around the world <laughs> in the last 10 years no, let's say five years because you know, I, I came across many economists, some of them friends, 
who who I would call heterodox economists, but that that they're you know they had a very conservative way to vote, uh, a vote that ended up either in bodies here or either in Trump in the U.S. or either in Bolsonaro's in Brazil. Uh, which was like, you know, a heterodox economist can't vote that way. <laughs> so I think all this, it goes back to what Luca has already said. So I'm still processing this change. But um, yeah, it was something that uh, was very, was definitely significant change in, in how I, I see and deal with economics. Got it. Okay, last question. What three books or films, articles, whatever, would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about all the things we've talked about? For those who are interested in heterodox economics, uh, I do think the starting point is Frederick Lee book, which is called A History of, Econo- of Heterodox Economics. Uh, I think this book is amazing. Um, yes, it focuses on the US and the UK mainly. So someone needs to write a book about uh, the, glo- the heterodox thought in the global south. <laughs> But it's a book that we need to, I think the discussion is amazing and we need to understand um, why there are different ways to do economics and I think that book can help us. Uh, a more a recent book, I've, you know, a book I had just really finished reading and uh, oh, that was, I can't even start explaining how that has changed me as a researcher, is <laughs> a book that called, uh, it's called Post-Colonialism meets economics uh, is an edited book by Sharu Shila and Zain El- sorry, Eladin. I can say in the references if I'm not pronouncing that well. This book is just, uh, especially in that historical context we are going through now, I think everybody should read. Um, and uh, to go back to all this market uh, discussion, the equilibrium, the question of how uh, if there is a toward, bias towards a uh, market, uh, I would like to recommend a book that I started reading recently. I'm halfway through, but this has really impressed me. Is that Matthew Watson? Yeah, and actually the book called The Market. <laughs> Before that, I would recommend um, reading Barbara Wooten's, which is a Gertonian I mentioned several times. She has a book called The Lament of Economics. Carolina Alves, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. It was a pleasure. That was Carolina Alves on heterodox economics, diversifying and decolonizing. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Carolina. There you will find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout the episode. Finn and I always spend a lot of time putting this together and summarizing the key points in an essay. We would be very grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there is also a link on the website to an anonymous form, or you can get in touch with us by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to especially hear what topics you want us to cover next. If you want to support the show more directly and help us keep hosting these episodes online, you can leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.